Well, hello, Gospel Hope. As you know, we are uh, wrapping up our final message in the series entitled It's Complicated. And so we close today by covering quite a few chapters once again, and that's 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, chapters 13 through 19. Uh, but before we get there, there is a passage that was preached a couple of weeks ago that is so crucial to fully understanding this stretch of passages here that we're going to be going through today. So again, the stretch from 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19 covers the unique relationship between David and his son Absalom. But before we get there, we need to read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, to get a little bit more understanding as to why all these things are happening. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 is when God steps in and declares to David through the prophet Nathan that he's going to be punished for the sin that he committed with Bathsheba against the Lord, before the Lord against Bathsheba and also against Uriah, the Hittite. So let's read. It says here, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Remember that the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Don't forget that. And I will also uh, take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie down with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The Lord goes on to say through the prophet Nathan that because David has sinned in this particular way, he's also blasphemed the Lord's name before outside nations that look at Israel as this example of how to do relationship with the one true and living God. And God doesn't like that. And so we're going to look at how this particular punishment or consequence of sin plays out in the life of David in these subsequent chapters. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 13 through chapter 19. But first, let's pray. Father God, we come before you today. We thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy. When we read your word in text like today, sometimes we tremble because we see that you are a God who is severe and who is sincere. You don't play any games. You're serious about sin. You're serious about your righteousness. You're serious about your holiness. But we also know you to be a God of great grace and mercy. We look forward to looking into the pages of Scripture and discovering all these things about you that we might live more rightly before you. Teach us now from your word through the example of David, Lord God, how you want us to live towards you now today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So with that that I just read for you, I want you to take in consideration what's about to happen in the next few chapters. As I said, from chapters 13 to 19, here's what's about to go down. David has a son, uh, several sons actually, and one of them is named Amnon. In chapter 13, Amnon actually has a lustful eye for one of his sisters named Tamar. Amnon devises uh, this unique scheme or opportunity to get his sister Tamar to come and tend to him while he pretends to be sick. During that time, he forces himself on her, both rape and incest. She is a virgin as well, which, which just kind of doubly adds to the unique shame that he has forced upon Tamar. Absalom, one of the brothers, who is also brother of Tamar as well as the brother of Amnon, finds out about this forced sexual encounter and he devises a plan that two years later results in him murdering, that is, killing his own brother Tamar, or excuse me, his brother Amnon, on behalf of Tamar, the sister who was incestually raped. This is quite scandalous. Many of you probably hear this story, and you're probably like, Amnon serves him right. That revenge that was affected on him by his brother Absalom. Well, Absalom recognizes that this kind of vigilante type of justice uh, probably won't fly with their father because he could have or should have escalated this issue to his father, the king, and allowed him to judiciously handle it. 
Well, Absalom decides to flee in chapter 14 and go into hiding. David, his father, is actually looking for him at the same time while grieving the death of one son, looking for another son who's on the run. Joab, who understands that Absalom is on the run, recruits a woman from a place called Tekoa. She doesn't have a name, but the place is called Tekoa that she's from, and it says that she's a wise woman. Joab, who is the captain of David's army, keep up, the captain of David's armies, recruits to this woman from Tekoa to go and appeal to David. She appeals to David with this story about a woman who has two sons, and she says that the woman is her. She doesn't reveal her identity immediately, but she says she's got these two sons, and, one of, and they were fighting out on a field, and one of them has been, one has been killed during the fight. And now everyone is looking for the other son who was killed in the fight. After she discloses this story about these two sons, one who was killed and the other who's now a fugitive on the run, David is moved with compassion toward the one son who is on the run. Unbeknownst to him, the woman of Tekoa is using this as an example to describe David's own behavior toward Absalom. And so David then uh, makes a vow after this conversation with the woman at Tekoa that he will not kill Absalom, but he does want to find him. In chapter 15, Absalom... Um, has then he has returned home and he is kind of sort of in the good graces of his father and at the end of chapter 14 there Absalom is upset because while he is back home or back in the land with his father in Jerusalem they aren't talking they aren't having fellowship with one another even though they're in the same space Absalom uh, under, I guess, the tension of this relationship silence from his father even though his father's not actively pursuing him to kill him devises a conspiracy that he acts out in chapter 15. The conspiracy that Absalom take, acts out in chapter 15 is that he stands outside the gate of the city. Now, the gate of the city is where many people would come to meet with the king if they had an issue. And they wanted the king to stand as a judge, which was part of his job, and to righteously administer justice to determine who was right and determine who was wrong. Well, Absalom would go out to the gate every day, and he would intercept the people before they would get into the city, and he would sit with them and say, oh boy, you're right, you're right. And he would administer favorably to all of these people, and then he began to self-advertise and say, you know what, the king hasn't e doesn't even have anyone positioned out here to hear your cases or to effectively judge and to administer amongst the people. And he begins to campaign for himself. The Bible tells us that in doing that, he wins the hearts of many of the people in Israel over to him. And this was all part of his plan. Eventually, Absalom then devises a plan to campaign and have much of Israel believing that he is now the new king or should be the new king instead of his father. Once uh, Absalom builds up this great uh, 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 mass appeal amongst the people of Israel, his, David, his father finds out about it. And this appeal that Absalom has made to become the king and is now sitting over in Hebron is so, uh, uh, it has so much momentum that David flees from his son Absalom because he knows that Absalom is going to come and try to kill him as king. Well, while David is on the run, fleeing his own son, in chapter 16, he comes into another city and meets a man named Shimei. As he is leaving the city of Jerusalem, Shimei curses David. He's of the house of Saul. Shimei curses David, yells at him, screams at him, calls him all kinds of names, throws dirt at him. And the men who are with David say, should we take out our swords and kill this man? In the way that he's talking to you, the Lord's anointed, he's nothing but a mere dog. And David says, no, 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 leave him alone. David and his men, the few that are with him, leave town. And then there are others like Ahithophel and, uh, and other men who are uh, typically with David that go and align themselves with Absalom, who is campaigning to be the new king or has now illegitimately set himself up as the king in Israel. Well, um, after that, David is now on the run. As David is on the run between chapters 16 and 17, Absalom is now building more and more momentum for this rogue campaign as king within Israel. And he is also devising a plan to take down his own father. While he's devising this plan in chapters 16 and 17, he's getting advice from all, in all kinds of counselors, one of which is not only uh, Ahithophel, but uh, another person who happened to be a personal friend of his father who kind of infiltrates his campaign. 
And Absalom takes this advice from uh, these two men and decides to mount up and go after his father in battle. Well, David is, no, uh, is not afraid of battle, so he mounts up and goes out as well. But as he mounts up and goes out in chapter 18, he tells the warriors that are with him, if you see Absalom, please don't kill him. He is my son. Show him favor. Show him grace. Well, it is Joab, the captain of David's armies, who happens to come across uh, Absalom first. And Joab plays no games. He ends up killing. Not ends up. He intentionally kills Absalom for the posture that he has taken against the king, the rightful king, and that is David. David finds out that his son Absalom has been killed, and he goes into a season of great and deep grief. In chapter 19, where all of this comes to a close, now that Absalom and all those that followed him are starting to come to their senses and realize that David is the real deal and he has the endorsement of God on his life, you're not going to beat him in battle. And the person who was heading them has now been slain, which is Absalom. Israel and Judah are now reunited under David's leadership. And in chapter 19, those people who previously came out and cursed against David are now kind of humbling themselves and coming back to him. And the kingdom is officially reconciled now under David's leadership. What in the world does this have to do with relationships? Well, what we see in this particular stretch of text is this very complex and unique relationship, which is different from any of the others that we've covered. It's not like David versus a big giant, right, who is, you know, this enemy of the Philistines. It's not like David is getting overlooked by his dad uh, for the position of president, right, when he was out in the field. It's not a, just a, a moment of being overlooked. It's not like he's working for the king, you know, and, and it's like Saul who's trying to kill him. This time, the person who is out for blood and trying to destroy David is his own son. And so the question that we need to answer today is this. What do you do when your fiercest enemy is actually a member of your own family? We'll be spending the most of our time today answering that question as well as watching the unique and righteous hand of God as it plays itself out as God described he would because the sword, he said, would not leave the house of David. So this is a unique situation that David is working through because a part of what David is having to iron out, he actually set in motion when he sinned several chapters ago or several years ago from a historical perspective in terms of where we are now. But what do you do when your fiercest enemy is, is actually a member of your family? The first thing that I want to point out to us in this story is that we must rely on this particular biblical truth, that the fallenness of man does not affect the faithfulness of God. The fallenness of man does not affect the fallenness of, excuse me, the faithfulness, the fallenness of man does not affect the faithfulness of God. What do I mean? Romans chapter 8 verse 38 says it this way, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the New Testament promise given to all believers that no matter what is coming against you, whether it is internal, whether it is external, whether it is celestial, whether it is visible, whether it is invisible, no matter what kind of opposition comes against God's people, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Or as I just said it earlier, we need to rely on, no matter how tumultuous any of our relationships may become, we need to rely and lean on one simple truth, that the fallenness of man has no effect on the faithfulness of God. He will remain faithful to his promise. The fundamental promise that David is operating off of right now is that the Lord promised that he would, through the establishment of his throne, raise up for himself an ultimate king. And that David, designated as a man after God's own heart, would sit in that seat. So no matter what's happening in David's life, he knows that his seat as a king is secure because it has been secured by God. We don't have seats as kings, but what we do need to know as king's kids in the New Testament is that no matter what is happening in and around us, nothing can separate us from the promised love of God. So even if the fiercest enemy is a member of your family, and this is one of the toughest and most difficult relationships you've ever had to navigate, know this, that nothing can separate you from the loving promises of God. 
what great confidence that delivers into our lives if we can rely on that truth. But in order to rely on that great promise and have that kind of confidence, we need to know what those promises are. I'm hoping today as we walk through this unique situation with David and Absalom that we can highlight some things that the scriptures say that we can grow to lean on that will help us in some of our most difficult and complex relationships. Again, we need to remember this. Rely, excuse me, we need to rely on this truth that the fallenness of man does not affect the faithfulness of God. I say that over and over again because you and I both know that when the relationships have a high cost, like a personal deep family relationship between you and a child, you and a parent, you and a sibling, you and a spouse, when the stakes are high and those relationships get rough, you all know, we all know, if we're honest, we can sometimes ask ourselves, God, are you even here? Are you even involved? Do you hear this? Do you see this? Do you see what's going on? We assume that sometimes God is totally absent. And I must remind you, and you must remind you through your own time spent before the Lord and in his word, that the fallenness of man, regardless of how sticky it gets, does not affect the faithfulness of God. God is not running and hiding, regardless of how wrecked any of our relationships may come. Now, let's go back and walk through the text a little bit more slowly. Our story starts at 2 Samuel chapter 13. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, remember what happened. Amnon has raped his sister Tamar, and Absalom decides that he is going to get his brother back. Rather than taking the details of the rape and this incest and going to their father as he should have and allowed his father, who is the king, and, his, and if he knows his dad and we know his father just from the pages of scripture, David doesn't take any mess. And he's willing to draw the sword or to administer justice in whatever way needs to be done. He's a man after God's own heart. But apparently Absalom didn't trust his father in this regard, and he waited two full years, wringing his hands and devising his own plan to get his brother back. And he concocted a plan to go out with his brother Amnon, and he actually slew him. And now he's on the run. But chapter 13 shows us something else about this whole vigilante justice move that was carried out by Absalom, David's son. Number one, I want us to remember this. Resist the urge in your deepest relationships when things are going wrong. Resist the urge to take it into your own hands what should be placed in God's hands. This is exactly what Absalom has done. This is something that God would have taken care of had he taken it to his father and worked it through the right channels. But by Absalom taking it into his own hands, he not only, not only did he kill his brother, and who knows if that's what David would have done, but he also didn't bring any restoration to Tamar. Uh, Tamar is not restored. Her dignity is not brought back. Her shame has not been recovered. Whatever loss is there has not been uh, 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 re uh, regained by her. The only thing that Absalom has done is now put a burr in the saddle between him and his own father, and he has murdered his brother. But this is the kind of carnage that happens when we take revenge into our own hands. So in our most sticky relationships, resist the urge to take into your own hands what should be placed in God's hands. Absalom should have taken it to David. And now his retribution against Amnon has only done one thing, and that's eliminate his brother. But it has not done the ultimate thing, which is to restore his sister. Revenge, uh, it's, this is what revenge says right here. Listen to this. Revenge says, Lord... I don't have the faith to fully, I don't, I don't have the faith that you fully understand what needs to happen right now. Revenge, when we take revenge into our own hands, we say, Lord, I don't have the faith or the patience to believe that you know what needs to be done or how it needs to be done right now in this moment. Romans chapter 12, um, verse 9 reads this way, Beloved, talking to us, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. You see, if we trust that the Lord has all power, has all knowledge, has all wisdom, knows all things, is in all places, his brand of wrath and judgment is far more complete, comprehensive, and able to address the situation than any momentary act of murder, malice, or revenge that we could ever conduct. And so, again, when it comes to these sticky relationships, resist. Step one, resist the urge to take into our hands what should be placed into the Lord's hands. Hear me carefully. I'm not saying do absolutely nothing. There was a way. 
for there to be real justice worked out in this family. This isn't about sweeping sexual abuse under the rug. Go to your father, the king. Run this thing up the flagpole. Don't wait two years and then murder your brother in the woods. That's what I'm saying. Resist the urge to take into our own hands what should be placed in God's hands. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, things get a little bit sticky now. This is the moment where I told you earlier that as a result of the, the slaying of his brother, Absalom has now fled. And during this time of fleeing, um, um, uh, he knows that his father is looking for him. Now, he doesn't know if his father is looking for him to do harm to him or to kill him, but the assumption is because he's done murder that, you know, his father maybe wants to bring some level of justice or reprimand. But it is Joab who intercedes, as I told you during my storm summary of the story, by sending this woman from, uh, this wise woman from Tekoa. And I want to read you something of this story because it's quite interesting when she appeals to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, listen to verses 4 through 8. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead and your servant has two sons. She's making this up, y'all. Uh, and my servant has two sons. Uh, there was no one to separate them. They were out in the field together and they quarreled and there was no one to separate them. And the one son struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they said, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of the brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus, they would um, quench my coal and this has left me uh, to my husband. And, and there is left, there's no one left to, to extend my husband's name. Neither nor is there a remnant for my husband on the face of the earth. Verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, oh, uh, me, oh, excuse me, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and he will never touch you again. What happens at the tail end of this story is that David promises that this particular thing will not happen, that this kind of uh, tit-for-tat kind of justice, that this one brother who killed the other brother won't be killed. Doesn't this sound familiar? This woman of Tekoa has come to David and giving him this little scenario that is actually uh, an analogy for how he is pursuing Absalom. Remember when Nathan did this to David? He told him the, two, the story about the two lambs or about the rich man who came and took the man's one little ewe lamb. And you know how David got enraged and he was like, uh-uh, that can't happen. This is injustice. Someone's doing it to David again. And he is now the object lesson. He's the one who's pursuing the other son. Isn't it interesting how David, he's not falling for tricks, but isn't it interesting how David seems to be able to see justice more clearly when he's not in the story? So my first point was to remember the urge, uh, excuse me, to resist the urge to take into your own hands what belongs into the Lord's hands. And the second point is this. Remember it is easier to see the wrong in others than it is in ourselves. It is much easier to see the wrong in others than it is in ourselves. David, as he listens to the story from the woman of Tekoa, can see the wrong of the, 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 the two brothers being killed, but he can't see it when it's he's the one that's doing the pursuing. It's always the case. Again, we're talking about unique relationships, some of our stickiest relationships, whether it's a relationship within the context of your family or someone that's deeply close to you. It is always, remember this, it is always easier to see wrong in others than it is in ourselves. Two times David has been able to see the wrong attitude toward relationships in his life when someone gave him an illustration or a scenario where he wasn't a participant. Isn't that interesting? When you're up to your neck, when you're knee deep, when you're emotionally in over your head, when your feelings are raging, when, when your facts and your ideas and you're, you're prepping for your argument, we can never see that we might have, uh, might have some guilt or, or some fault in a particular relationship that has gone awry when we are actively in it. It seems to take an outside perspective to bring us to this awareness. Look at uh, what the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word 
and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forget what he was like. But he, but the one who looks into the perfect law and the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but also a doer and acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In the New Testament, we are called to the same place, to constantly keep our faces in God's word, because that's one of the places where we can look in a mirror and see our own story with maybe not us being a direct participant. It is the objective view and the voice of God's word that we need to remember so that we don't end up adopting a posture that is hyper judgmental and so emotionally engaged that we can't see our own fault in some of our stickiest relationships. And it is the mirror of God's word that is that objective voice that we need in our lives. Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 7 verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? This is the Lord's cure for those who are hypocritically judgmental. This is not Jesus' statement against, being, against recognizing wrong, but recognizing wrong in the lives of others when you are not intent on recognizing it in your, in your own eyes. Notice the parallels that Jesus used. How are you going to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye if you don't if you have a log in yours no a speck a log notice how different those two are this isn't saying you shouldn't help your brother remove a speck from his eyes it said you can't do it with precision if you've got a log in yours remove the log first from your eye according to the scriptures and then you'll be clear to remove the speck from that of your brother this is what the word of God calls us to do in our relationships where we do find legitimate fault with others. Notice that the Bible didn't say that the brother who had a speck that needed to be removed, it didn't say his eye was clear. It didn't say that he was speck free and guiltless. It says that you and I simply can't with precision and care remove the speck from that person's eye if we've got a log in ours. So this isn't the Bible's call not to get involved in calling people out when they're wrong, but it's the Bible's call that we would be careful to first address our issue before we lunge into another person's issue. Oftentimes in relationships that are deeply close to us, it's hard for us to separate our wrong from theirs. And we begin taking score, calling names, remembering past ills and events. And it gets us all charged up to where we're constantly going at each other's eyes. And we have logs in both and not able to carefully and effectively remove the speck from that of my brother. But just remember this, that we need to look regularly in the mirror of God's word. And we need to listen carefully to godly counsel and community. Remember, this has happened two times to David. I think this is enough for us. Remember, that it needs to be happening to us. We need people in our lives who have access and proximity, regardless of relationship and position. The woman of Tekoa, totally unknown to David. Nathan, known to David. So being able to speak truth into our lives is not a license that only belongs to people that are close and near to us. The Bible allows us to see two separate scenarios where a person who is in a position that's higher, that is a king, should be open to clearly hearing truth, regardless of who the person is, as long as what they're sharing is truth. I hope you can hear that and see that, because I believe that some of us have preserved the ability to be corrected or called on the carpet, or maybe have some things removed from our eyes or have some truth revealed to us. We've reserved that privilege for a unique group of people who are special to us. But the reality is God can speak truth through donkeys, and he'll oftentimes do it through his word, and we have to be in that word regularly. And we also need to be regularly in wise counsel and community with others so that people can have access to our lives when we have something that needs to be pulled out of our eyes. Now, after David um, hears this wise word from this woman at Tekoa, and then it is revealed that she's talking to him, David relents from his position of pursuing after Absalom and then asks that Joab would bring Absalom to him. But he says, bring Absalom to him, but it's with a caveat. Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, but they are not interacting well. The two of them are there, and Absalom gets frustrated and says, why didn't the king just kill me if he was going to let me live here in the same place, but we never have any interaction or fellowship? I want to capitalize on that because that frustrates many of us. There may be some of you, your most difficult and toughest relationships are with those with whom you share a lot of space. 
Maybe you live at the same address. You're in the same family. You're in common spaces on a regular basis. And what frustrates that relationship is when people have, are in the same location, but they have no communion, connection, or fellowship. Relationship does not assume fellowship. We have to be intentional about fellowship. Relationship, sometimes we're just born into it. It's on our birth certificate. It's on our marriage document. It is what it is. We just share the same name. We share the same address. We share the same parents. We share the same whatever. There's certain things that won't change our relationship. So much is the same with our relationship with the Lord. Nothing will change the fact that he is our Father, our Lord, and our Creator, and our Savior if we are in him. But we can have a deficit in fellowship. Fellowship is an intentional relationship behavior that we must take responsibility for and not wait for others to come to us first. So Absalom goes to Joab and says, I want to sit down and have some time with the king. And so the king or, or, or Joab makes an appeal on, on David's behalf, and the two of them are able to connect. However, Absalom's heart is not right toward his father. As I told you in the story summary that in 2 Samuel chapter 15, um, through 17, Absalom begins this great work of conspiracy against his father. He begins to stand outside the gate and begins to subvert his father's authority by pretending and acting as a judge. And he starts to curry favor. He's campaigning. I mean, he's, he's kissing babies and showing up to all kinds of parties. Absalom goes out here in front of the gates, and he's not administering authentic justice. The Bible says that he's hearing what people are saying, and he was like, yep, you're right. Yep, you're right. Don't you wish that you always had somebody who was standing out here to, to, to judge on your cases? And this is how he won favor with the people, by not administering authentic justice, where he might have to call some people out, but he intentionally kissed and hugged people and, 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 and treated them extremely well all with the intent of perverting their hearts over to his heart so that he could steal the kingdom from his father. In moments like this, we not only need to resist the urge to take into our hands what belongs in the Lord's hands, we need to not only remember that it is easier to see our wrong or to see wrong in others than it is to see it in ourselves, but we need to also realize that when relationships seem to be at their worst, worship could be or should be your secret weapon. Huh? Yeah. You see, after Absalom had now garnered enough people to his team and to his side and run a campaign against his father, his father has now fled from Absalom. The father is fleeing because there's enough people following Absalom that Absalom could actually pursue and kill his father. As a matter of fact, his, his dad says, we need to leave before Absalom comes and completely takes us out. And he is gathering more and more and more support. Absalom's gathering more and more support. And it is during this time when David is on the run that he writes three psalms that I want to share with you. Here, it are, here they are. Psalm 3, David authors while his son Absalom is trying to kill him. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. It's not just Absalom. Other people like Shimei and people that I told you of the house of Saul, people are cursing David out. People are, people are, if, people are rallying to uh, um, um, Absalom. People who previously were with David are now going over to Absalom and they're anticipating the death of David. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But, oh Lord, you are my shield. You are a shield about me. You are my glory, the lifter of my head. I, cry out, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I woke up again and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me. O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David wrote this while his son was actively trying to kill him. He's on the run from his own child from a seat and a kingdom that the Lord has promised to him. But this is a time when David writes some of his best worship. I want to say to you, as I said earlier in the passage, that when it seems like things are at their worst, worship is going to be your best and your most secret weapon. Why is that? If you continue to listen to the words of David, listen at Psalm 70, just a few words. O Lord, do not delay. Uh, make haste, O God. To deliver me, O Lord, make haste and help me. Let me not be put to shame uh, and confusion who seek out my life. 
Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their way, uh, because they say, aha, aha. May we seek to rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You're, you are my help and you are my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. I love watching David worship. Because when David worshiped, it reminds me of the role that windshield wipers play in a great storm. When the rain comes down, you immediately can't see clear. And any, does anybody will admit that when you run through a torrential storm, your first response is panic? I mean, you turn the radio down, you, uh, you jump on the brakes a little bit. And then, but the one thing you really need to do is turn on the windshield wipers. And the moment, it, if you've got good windshield wipers, if you've got bad windshield wipers, go to AutoZone Pet Boys and get that fixed right now. But if you've got good windshield wipers, you know what happens? You flip those bad boys on and they go to working and guess what while the storm is bad you feel much better because you can at least see do you know that that's what good worship is worship is your secret weapon because it works just like a good set of windshield wipers listen to david's words he describes the problem but as he's worshiping the lord word by word his hope is getting clearer his vision of god is getting clearer just like you and i when we're driving along we're able to more effectively navigate the more we turn up those windshield wipers and get them going regardless of how much rain is coming down and i want to ask you and beg you to learn how to develop your secret weapon just like like David did. Notice that David's secret weapon wasn't to draw a sword, but it was to draw down and to go into his closet and begin to worship God because it allowed him not to so much focus on his son, but to focus on his savior. Did you notice that in the two Psalms that I read for you, and if I would even do down into uh, a Psalm 71 that he also wrote during this time, that David spends about two lines describing the problem. And then after that, he turns the corner and begins to describe the great nature of redemption and salvation that comes from his Lord. This is what our worship needs to do. Our worship before the Lord. Yes, sing songs of redemption that you've memorized from your childhood. Yes, download stuff from Spotify. Yes, plug in some MP3s or some cassettes, whatever generation you might be from, or go to YouTube and listen to your favorite artists. But I also want to challenge you to, to adopt the business of writing your own worship, singing your own worship, where you describe in detail some of the things that are happening in your life, and then you begin to wash that away with some clear affirmations of who God is and how he saves. Worship is your secret weapon during some of the worst times in your life, and you and I need to remember that. And this is what David did. Um, in addition to this, I want you to note and hear some of the words and some of the things that are said about David. This isn't subtle uh, issues that he has, to have a son that's trying to kill him. Look at uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 9. These are the words of Shimei. It says, uh, when David came to uh, Beruim, um, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of the king of David and at all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right and on his left. That's a lot of rocks and that's a lot of cussing, right? And Shimei, as he cussed, he said, get out, get out. You man of blood, you worthless man, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. One of David's servants turned around and says, hey, you want me to do him? You want me to go get him? And David says, no, some of the things that he's saying may indeed be true. We'll let the Lord handle this. Let's just keep it moving. And David shows incredible restraint. And I want to ask you, beloved, I want to ask you, people of God, that sometimes when people are saying things to you and about you that you know may or may not be true at all, but the way that they're saying or the time that they're saying and the place that they're saying are, are incredibly inconvenient. It's one of the worst seasons in your life. Hold your restraint and trust that the Lord can handle that issue. So many times if we get into an argument with those who are speaking ill of us, we feel the need to defend and fact check and, and, and just line by line prove that what they're saying is not actually correct when the real thing to do is to keep it moving. And this is going to be worth its weight in gold later in the story when we get to chapter 19. Our number one priority in times like this that David's in, our number one priority must be to stay at the Lord's side and not try to recruit people to join our side. Absalom, in this moment, for the, these three chapters, from 15 to 18, is in a constant mode of recruiting people to his side. 
David doesn't have that many people on his side, but he has one person that matters most, and that is he has the Lord. So remember this, our number one priority in some of the most contentious times in our lives must be to stay at the Lord's side rather than trying to socialize our argument and our position and win a bunch of other people to our side. We can do this in family sometime when there's a tough issue. We go around and we pick up the phone and we call various family members and we ask them how they feel about certain things that have gone down. We tell partial stories. We tell pieces of the story. We tell the whole story, but with special emphasis on parts of the story that we know will garner their support and get them enraged just like we are. The top priority in a dispute like this is to make sure that we are walking by the Lord's side, not trying to campaign and pull other people to our side. As we get ready to draw to a close, 2 Samuel chapters 18 through 19 offers this moment where Absalom, unfortunately, following the uh, erroneous advice, and what's interesting is that uh, the Bible tells us that the Lord had taken occasion against Absalom for the, what he was trying to do to his father, and he caused Absalom's heart to heed advice that wasn't good. And Absalom decided to go out into battle against his father. And as he was riding on his horse, he got caught in a tree branch and Joab found him. And when Joab found him, Joab doesn't play. If you followed his story at all, he's the captain of the Lord's armies and uh, he doesn't have a problem pulling out the sword. And it says that he stabbed Absalom through the heart. Absalom is now dead. But do you know what's interesting about Absalom's death? is that David didn't enjoy it. David didn't enjoy it. He grieved it. But wait a minute. David, Absalom was trying to kill you. Absalom was trying to take your job. He's trying to take your throne. A Absalom publicly embarrassed you. He went into your house. It, it, back in chapter 16 uh, or, or in 17, Ahithophel told Absalom, why don't you really go and embarrass your dad by setting up a tent on the rooftop, and I want you to go and have sex with all his wives publicly in the tent. And Absalom did it. But David grieves the death of his son. Isn't that interesting? That David has this repose that he can grieve the death of his son? What is it about David that allows him to do that? Well, we've already heard that David was a man after God's own heart. And one thing that being a man after God's own heart will cause you to do is to, number one, resist taking things into your hands that belong in the Lord's hands. Number two, to remember it's always easier to see the wrong in others than it is in yourself. To number three, realize that uh, your best weapon in some relationships might be your worship rather than your words. And you also need to do this in chapters 18 and 19. I believe David did it. To remain committed to the well-being of those who do you wrong and trust that the Lord will make the situation right. I'll read that again, because that might not sound right. Maybe you felt like I fumbled my words, but now you heard me right. Remain committed to the well-being of those who do you wrong, and trust that the Lord will make the situation right. Jesus called us to this too. He said to love your enemies, and now he calls on their head. Love your enemies. Not just be courteous and casual. Love them. David just like when Saul, who was not his family member, he was committed to the well-being of Saul. This is a man after God's own heart who can have the well-being of his enemies at hand or at heart. David commanded his soldiers as they went out to battle. He commanded, Joab was actually disobedient. David commanded the men of war to not touch Absalom, but they did it anyway. David commanded them to not kill the guy, to not kill, this, to kill, kill the kid. Now, I want to remind you of something here. As we get to the end of chapter 19, something really unique happens. In chapter 19, there's this stretch or this moment where everybody realizes, once again, that the war is over. And you remember Shimei, the guy who, who, who cussed David in and out of town? He threw rocks at David and all the people that were with him. That's a lot of rocks and that's a lot of cussing. You remember, that? you remember the guy who was like, all of this, you, this should be on your back, David. You get out of here. Here is Shimei now coming to David in chapter 19 after all of this fighting is over, and he recognized that the kingdom, the, both the house of Judah and of Israel, have now been reconciled under David. Here comes Shimei. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, 
hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, was with um, uh, 15 sons and 20 of, the, of his servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed over the ford uh, to, 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 to bring over the son's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king. And as he was about to cross the Jordan, and he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, uh, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord, the king. And Abishai, the son of Jezeruah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David, here we go. But David said, what have I to do with you, you son of Zeruiah, uh, that you should be this day an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know, excuse me, for I do, for do I not know that I am king over all Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. David has the well-being of his most vicious enemies at heart. Isn't this interesting? I mean, he, he showed the same kindness to his son. It wasn't David who killed Absalom. It was, it was Joab who killed Absalom. It was David who commanded, don't kill Absalom. It's now David who has every right to kill Shimei, and he says, don't do it. This is indeed a man after God's own heart. But David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's only a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the true king that will supersede him in every way. When I see this story of David, a man who has been spoken ill against and betrayed, treated like a dirty, low-down, rotten criminal by Absalom on one hand and Shimei on the other, I can't help but to remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You remember those people that were crucifying and crying against Jesus? They knew exactly what they were doing with their hands and with their mouths. But Jesus says they don't know the full picture of what they do. And he asked that they be forgiven. But even more importantly, do you remember in Luke chapter 23? You got to see this. When the two criminals hang on either side of Jesus, one of the criminals who hang railed against him in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. They railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, to him in reply, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the story of the two thieves uh, hanging on the cross on either side of Christ remind me of the story of David standing there administering justice in between Absalom, his son, and Shimei, this man who cursed him. Both men did the same thing. They spoke against the Lord's anointed. They spoke against the Lord's king. But David showed mercy to Shimei because Shimei was willing to recognize his sin and what he had done. This is a beautiful illustration of the righteousness of God that is equally robust in both condemnation for those who do not come to repentance and both forgiveness for those that do. The righteousness of God is indeed the righteousness of God, and the display is equally potent. But in one moment, the righteousness of God shows great mercy and covenant, and there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus who will come to the end of themselves and recognize they need to repent and that their sins are actually against the Lord's anointed and his Savior. So just like Shimei, we too have been Shimei. We too have been some Absaloms. We too have been people who have said the wrong things against God, who have said things that are not right about him, who have shaken our fist at heaven, who have sinned against him, who have lived in ways that were totally opposite of what the king would have us to do. But the father in his great mercy allowed his righteousness to show up as redemption in the lives of some and wrath in the lives of others. But fortunately for us that are with me today, the wrath of God hasn't fallen on you. The wrath of God was placed on the person of Christ and the opportunity to place our faith in Christ so that that wrath does not rest on us, but rather on him. We've got that opportunity today.
David is a man after God's own heart. And in him, we see this small echo of the Lord Jesus Christ administering the righteousness of God in passing over and showing mercy for the sins of Shimei. But yet Absalom was committed to running hard after David, going in the opposite direction that God was going. And his own energy and commitment to do David in actually resulted in the end of his own life. Let's not run in the opposite direction of God. Let's make sure that every opportunity that the Lord gives us to experience his righteousness in the form of redemption and mercy, we take full advantage of it. I hope you've enjoyed this series, It's Complicated, because you know what? It has been complicated. And I hope we've had a chance to speak into some of your most complicated relationships. And in all of them, I hope you walk away with this, that the Lord's righteousness is never undermined by human brokenness. It is actually human brokenness that makes us aware of how desperately we need God's righteousness. These stories of David's life have been so I mean, this has been crazy to just kind of work through and watch all, as I call it, the carnage and the wreckage of David's life. But human brokenness is what makes us aware that we need God's righteousness. We need something bigger than and more powerful than ourselves to resolve and fix this. Not just fix it, but to redeem it. Our world looks worse than what we just walked through in the life of David. There is carnage relationally and politically and pandemically everywhere, right? This is a mess of epic proportion that no politician, no policy, no person, no police officer, no one church could ever resolve. It takes a savior to fix this epic mess that we're currently in. So be encouraged by the great brokenness that we experience in our land today because the brokenness speaks of the largeness of the God and the solution that we need. We need to see God's righteousness. Let's pray that he would allow us to be stewards of his righteousness in our particular spaces to be representatives of reconciliation and be people after God's own heart. Thank you for joining us during the course of our series. I can't look to get with you again as we kick off our new series. And you, I won't tell you what that is today. Well, you will find out in, in just a little while. But let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to you this day for walking us through your word and helping us understand more about what it means to be a person after your own heart and how we need to seek to be near your side rather than trying to pick sides. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.